Our Old Testament lesson comes from Isaiah chapter 26. Isaiah chapter 26. Hear now the word of the Lord. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. O Lord our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. They are dead, they will not live. They are shades, they will not rise. To that end you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. But you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant. We writhed. But we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth. And the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. This is the word of the Lord. In that day, this song will be sung in Judah, indeed, the very next words in chapter 27. In that day, the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. In that day. may seem odd to preach on the coming day of the Lord on Christmas Eve, but then again, this is the point of Christmas Eve. As long as it remains Christmas Eve, there is no salvation. There is no redemption. If Christmas Day never comes, then we remain under the threat of Judgment Day. And that's why Isaiah 26 is the perfect Old Testament reading for Christmas Eve. Here at the end, there's this awful picture of a, a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to wind. Now, uh, 
Can you just imagine that, especially you, you mothers, going through all the pains of labor, all the hours of contractions and pushing, just to pass gas? Would that be worth it? <laughs> what is it that makes labor worth it? The joy of bringing a child into the world, that little person who resembles me. But to go through all the agony of childbirth, just for a little fart, and not the little cute little fart that you talk about holding on. Talk about futility. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth. And then there came a Christmas Eve when the Blessed Virgin felt the beginning of the birth pangs. Only then was there a labor that would accomplish deliverance in the earth. And as she was delivered of her child, as the hymn writer put it, to show God's love aright, she bore to men a Savior when half-spent was the night. Our New Testament lesson comes from First Thessalonians First Thessalonians chapter 5. Hear now the word of the Lord. We'll come, we'll start with the end of chapter 4, starting at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. Last time we looked at the, the coming of the Lord, and today we turn to the day of the Lord. And the idea of, of the day of the Lord is connected with Judgment Day all throughout the scriptures. So Isaiah 13 speaks of the day of the Lord as a day of destruction. Jeremiah 46, the, the day of the Lord as the day of vengeance. Ezekiel 30, the day of the Lord as the day of doom for the nations. Uh, the whole book of Joel is organized around the day of the Lord as the day of judgment. Amos 5 warns the day of the Lord is a day of darkness, not light. 
Zephaniah 1 speaks of the bitter sound of the day of the Lord. And Malachi 4 speaks of the day of the Lord as a day of consuming fire. So when Paul here speaks of the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 5, he's building on a familiar theme and a very consistent theme throughout the scriptures, the day of the Lord as the day of judgment. Now, in chapter 4, we and I wanted to read that again to remind you, the coming of the Lord is a very comforting theme because the coming of the Lord is his presence with us, that we might be with the Lord. The day of the Lord has a very different connotation. And while the main theme is the judgment day at the end of history, which that's what Paul's talking about here, at the same time, given that he's weaving this together with the discussion of those who have fallen asleep, it's important to recognize that Paul is pointing out that for each of us, you might say judgment day is connected with the day of our death. We all face the day of the Lord. For each of us, it is appointed to die once and then judgment. And, and no one knows the hour of our death. Yes, it looks like Grandma Della may finally be approaching that hour for her. But eight months ago, we thought it was approaching sooner. But none of us know the hour of our death. John Chrysostom said, well, do not place your confidence in your youth nor think that you have a very fixed term of life. For the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. Let the old man keep this admonition. Let the young man heed this advice. So whether you are well off or in need, whether you are afflicted or comfortable, situations change. We are not masters of our end. All we are given is to seek to become Masters of virtue. Seek to become masters of living well. Uh, People sometimes talk about, ah, that person died well. And almost in every case, the reason why they died well was because they had lived well. I had a professor in seminary who died of cancer when he was still in his 50s. He had lived very openly before everyone as a godly man his family had walked faithfully and they continued that walk there you know some some people some people have that have that uh, sort of they they live on facebook and or at least they they sort of they show you all the the good parts al groves uh put together a little, as, as he was walking through death, it, I don't know how much he was on Facebook, but he, he basically had, he had, he had a little web page that he would reflect on everything that was going on, not just the good stuff. It was the good stuff, the bad stuff, the hard stuff. And because he had lived that way, because he had lived openly before his students, openly before his community, as he lived, so he died. That's the, the only way to die well is to live well. And it's always more complicated than that. But as we look at the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 5, remember that this life is a training ground for the next. How we live now sets the trajectory for eternity. That's important for us to think about. It's 
it's not, it's not just sort of, oh, as long as I believe in Jesus, then I get to go to heaven. I mean, that's a very flimsy way of looking at it. But rather, how we live now is the training ground, the preparation for what comes next. We, we often say that to our children about, ah, how, how you live now prepares you for what comes next in life. It's equally true for the oldest of us, that how you live now prepares you for what comes next. Paul says to the Thessalonians that concerning times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. He had said the same thing back in in chapter 4, verse 9, concerning brotherly love. It it didn't stop him then, and it doesn't stop him now. Just because you already know it doesn't mean you don't need to hear it again. And Paul's point is to solidify your hope. As we keep seeing, hope is the central theme in 1 Thessalonians. And so I keep asking you this question. What is your hope? What is it that motivates you to do what you do? We are all motivated by hope. Every human being gets up in the morning because they are hoping something. They are looking forward to something. So whatever it is that you are looking forward to, that's what your hope is. And then comes the day of the Lord. Then comes Judgment Day. I spoke with a young man recently whose father had just died, and as long as his father was alive, he felt as though there was a shield between him and death. And now that his father has died, he feels like that barrier is gone. And he said it felt strange to have nothing left in between him and death. Well, generations come, generations go. What is the, the hope that endures? Well, there is only one hope that can survive Judgment Day because there is only one hope who has already passed through Judgment Day. This is what we celebrate on Christmas Day. The Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. The one who joined himself to our humanity so that through his death and resurrection he might pass through God's, the realm of God's wrath and curse. We saw this last time that, that what is it? What is death? Death is the entrance into the realm of God's wrath and curse. And that's why Jesus came in our flesh. He triumphed over death so that, as he says in John's Gospel, the one who lives and believes in me will never die. And and the first image that Paul brings in here is the the image of the day of the Lord as something utterly unpredictable, a thief in the night. No one expects a thief in the night. The coming of a thief is unexpected and unwelcome. And even so, for the unbeliever in particular, Paul says, the day of the Lord will be unexpected and unwelcome for those who live in rebellion against God. But, But then the image shifts in verse 3 and may shift in a way that struck you as odd because while people are saying there is peace and security then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. That that seems like a strange metaphor because pregnancy lasts pretty regularly for nine months. You know, give or take a few weeks here. But you know that labor pains are coming. The thief in the night is utterly unpredictable. 
labor pains don't sound quite like sudden destruction. But part of it is that no matter how expected it is, it can be rather sudden. Like when Virginia asked me if I could make a phone call for her since she couldn't make it more than a couple minutes in between contractions. And I looked at her and was like, you're in labor. <laughs> and a few minutes later, William was born. And a few minutes after that, the midwife showed up. Um, <laughs> The point that Paul is making here is is not that labor pains are totally unexpected. The reason he makes the shift in the imagery is because a thief in the night may never come. You may go your whole life and never have a thief break in. Ha! I escaped that one. If you're pregnant, labor pains are coming. And all of, those, all of those of you who have been through this know that at the beginning there's sort of this, okay, yeah, those labor pains are coming. <laughs> and then when you get towards the end, then you're like, I'm done, I'm ready, for, let's get this over with. I mean, this is where the, Paul, the Paul's point is that the pregnant woman will give birth. There is no way to avoid the coming judgment. And in the same way, there is regularity in the pattern of God's dealings with his people. You reap what you sow. Judgment day is coming. How do you know? Well, you see it every time you see a woman give birth. And as we saw in Isaiah 26, until Christmas Day came, there had never been a childbirth that had brought salvation. There's a sense in which all of previous efforts that Israel had made, that humanity had ever made, were a giving birth to wind. Salvation was never brought by any human effort. Until Christmas, every childbirth ended in death and the grave. Until Christmas, every child that was born died and stayed there. Only in the resurrection of Jesus was there a child who died and was raised from the dead, triumphing over death, never to die again. Oh, sure, you can think of those Old Testament examples of, oh, well, well you know, there was, there was Enoch who walked, right, but he never died. So he, his body, he just never died. That was strange. And that's kind of the point of Enoch. And there were resurrections in the Old Testament. People who were raised again and then died again. And their bodies stayed in the grave that time. Great. (laughs) Only in the resurrection of Jesus is there one who triumphs over death and the grave. Until Christmas, death kept winning. Generations come, generations go. What's the point? And then we come to the greatest word in the whole Bible. But. Because, I mean, the problem is, I mean, if this is the problem, if we just keep dying and it all just, just ends in death. But, verse 4, yes, judgment day is coming, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Judgment day will not surprise you. Whether you live until the coming of Christ or whether you die, whether you fall asleep, to use Paul's phrase, that day will not surprise you. You will not see the day of the Lord as 
a surprise because you're always expecting it. The day of the Lord is, you know, this is what is coming. And it doesn't surprise you because Christmas is here. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. You are not in darkness. The light has shined in the darkness, and darkness and death have been defeated. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. You were once darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. You are children of light, children of day. How did you become children of light? Well, as John says, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And notice how Paul uses this as a way of of motivating you. Because if, if you have been united to Christ by faith, if you have put off the works of darkness and have put on the armor of light and are no longer the children of darkness or night, but you have become sons of the day, that means you should walk honestly as in the day. This is who you are in Christ. So then be who you are in Christ. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Now in the previous chapter, Paul had spoken of death as a sort of falling asleep. Those who have fallen asleep in Jesus will be raised at the coming of the Lord. Now, Paul uses two different verbs, and in this chapter he uses a different verb than he did in the previous chapter. And it's not that the two different verbs mean something fundamentally different, it's just Paul's wanting to distinguish between falling asleep, which is referring to death, and sleeping, his verb here, which what he means by that is being lazy. Forgetting who you are in Christ. Because if, you might say, slumber. It's, it's the, it's not being watchful, not being awake, not being aware of what is going on around you. Because here it's a, it's a mood of laziness. It's a mood of slothfulness. As he says in verse 7, for those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. We are not characterized by the night, by sleep, by drunkenness. We belong to the day. We are watchful, sober, focused. Now, I, in our culture, perhaps I need to explain something of what Paul's doing here, because in our sort of 24-7 culture, okay, so I need to be busy, busy, busy. Okay, that's, that's actually not what Paul's saying. Paul says that we need to be Sober. What does that mean? Sober is not merely the opposite of drunk. Sober has its own meaning of to be calm, temperate, moderate, not given to extremes. So if you're following the rat race, busy, 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 always got to be doing, 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 that's not sober either. That's its own sort of addiction, its own sort of drunkenness, its own sort of, of running after everything. 
To be sober means to be clear-minded. When we get distracted, then we don't actually fear God. We fear something else. We fear man. We fear what people think of us. When we are sober-minded, we see ourselves clearly because we see God clearly. And you will never actually see yourself clearly until you see Jesus clearly. There's a way in which anything that distracts from Jesus is a sort of drunkenness. I suspect Paul would say that our obsession with our devices is a type of drunkenness, a type of addiction. And being sober, being moderate, being temperate, means that we are not addicted to anything. Addictions, by their very nature, are intemperate, immoderate, and inordinate because they take what properly belongs to God and gives it to something else. But let me also be clear that sober does not mean boring. Because I think that, that's the other direction people can take this. I mean, just to give you an example, when, when Proverbs 5 contrasts true love with adulterous lust, listen to how the father says, describes it to his son. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Sober does not mean boring. A, a, a healthy amount of wine enlivens a party. Too much wine destroys a party. Both the ordinate and the inordinate use of God's good gifts, wine, sex, etc., are intoxicating, but one leads to joy and life and the other to sorrow and death. This is where being sober means to be properly engaged. It's when, when you are feasting, that is the proper time to... But to turn everything in life into a feast, that is improper. To turn everything in life into self-satisfaction, that is improper. The, the ordinary Christian life, this, this is Calvin's point, the ordinary Christian life should be lived as a sort of perpetual fast. That we are sort of not seeking our own self-gratification. But that we are rather sober, which means that in our pursuit of Christ, we actually can find joy. And after all, look at the rest of the sentence. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, in Ephesians 6, this will get worked out into the whole armor of God. Uh, here, we simply have the armor of faith, hope, and love. Now, we've seen throughout the series that Paul is centered on these themes of faith, hope, and love. We are to keep believing God in our work of faith. We are to keep loving God and neighbor in our labor of love. And all of this because of our steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And here, when Paul talks about the armor of faith, hope, and love, the imagery reminds us of how faith, hope, and love protect us from the assaults of the devil. Satan wants nothing more than to trip you up and cast you down. 
And so God has given you his own armor, the armor of his beloved son to protect you. And this language is taken from Isaiah 59 where, where it speaks of God himself coming and putting on his armor and coming to save his people. It's actually the language of judgment day, the coming day of the Lord. When it says that in Isaiah 59:15, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. God looks and says, yeah, they keep dying. They keep falling short. There is no salvation. And so, then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And then later Isaiah says, And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. The armor of God is what Jesus wore when he came to save us. So you might say on Christmas Eve 2,000 years ago, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Son of God strapped on his armor. And as we are joined to the life of God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God clothes us with Christ and thus with his armor. That's why Paul refers to it as the breastplate of faith and love, protecting our heart, protecting and guarding our affections. And then he speaks of the helmet as the hope of salvation. After all, hope has to do with what are you looking at? What are you looking for? The the helmet of salvation, the hope of salvation, keeps us looking to Jesus. We see him. And he is our help and our shield. Uh, This is why hope is so important in Paul's letter. Because hope is intimately bound up with the coming of Christ. As we saw at the end of chapter 3, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. That's the hope that Paul speaks of? What is it that motivates our love for one another and for all? Hope. What is it that establishes our hearts blameless in holiness? Hope. And this armor language reminds us that we're in a conflict. The devil would love to distract us and get us to forget what he is doing and what we are doing. And we need to remember that the Christian life will always be lived as a life lived in the pattern of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And so it's in affliction that we need to cry out to God. John Chrysostom says it well. Therefore let us stir up our conscience to fervor. Let us afflict our soul with the memory of our sins, not so that it's crushed with anxiety, but so that we may make it ready to be heard, so that we may make it live in sobriety and watchfulness and ready to attain heaven itself. Nothing puts carelessness and negligence, sleepiness, to flight the way grief and affliction do. They bring together our thoughts from every side and make our mind turn back to ponder itself. The one who prays in this way, the one who prays in his affliction after many a prayer, can bring joy into his own soul. I 
appreciated the, the piece that Dave sent around from Anthony Esselin on joy because as Esselin points it, puts it, the thing about joy is you can't pursue it because it isn't something you accomplish or earn or create or ferret out of a hole in your life. It is closer to solemnity than it is to pleasure. And that's why tears sometimes accompany it. Tears that well up uncalled for from the heart. Because joy is not something that is just a passing fancy. Rather, joy is something deep down. A deep down abiding joy that endures and can endure even in the midst of affliction. For, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. This is the point of Christmas. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God himself took our form so that through his own death and resurrection, he might triumph over sin and death and bring us to himself that we might live with him. As Paul had said in chapter 4, verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. After all, those who have died and been raised with Christ can never enter the sphere of God's wrath and curse. As Paul says here, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. This is actually the same point that Jesus had made to Martha in John chapter 11, after the death of the tomb of Lazarus, when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. How does that work? Well, yes, the Christian will die, and that's why Paul says, will fall asleep, but the Christian will not enter the realm of God's wrath and curse, because not only your soul belongs to Jesus, but also your body belongs to Jesus. And so sure, at your death, soul and body may get pulled apart from each other. But because soul and body still both belong to Jesus, you do not experience the being pulled apart, torn apart, disintegration that is what death is. You experience a wholeness that is yours in Jesus. Oh yeah, as long as we are in this this flesh, we are disintegrating. And every single one of you who is older than you used to be, that would be all of you, feel this in your own bodies even now. Because those who live and believe in Jesus receive life from him. As Jesus said in John 6, unless you eat his flesh and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And as we come to the Lord's table, we feed upon Christ by faith. As the word of God is proclaimed to you, you receive the words of eternal life which flow from Christ's throne. And this is what Jesus has been doing. In the the Garden of Eden, there was a tree of life. And as long as Adam and Eve ate of that tree, they would live forever. In Proverbs, the, the father tells his son, whoever finds wisdom finds life and receives favor from the Lord. In Revelation, the the river of life flows through the city of God, bringing healing to the nations. 
because you are no longer under God's curse. You have been brought out of the land of death into the land of life and blessing in Christ Jesus. And just as God did not abandon his son to the grave, so also he will not abandon you who are in Christ, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This is God's purpose in Christ. This is God's purpose in you that we might live with him. That's why we must put on that breastplate of faith and love. It is ours in Christ, but we must still put it on. The work of faith and the labor of love are the everyday tasks that God has called us to. And for a helmet, put on the hope of salvation. Take that helmet off and you'll wander away from the way of Christ. As you spend time with family and friends this season, keep asking yourself, am I putting my hope in Christ? Am I wearing the helmet of the hope of salvation? Am I putting on the breastplate of faith and love? When you're tempted to get frustrated with things not going the way you planned, that never happens in the holidays, does it? We get frustrated Yeah, we love these people, but you know, there's these other people. But ask yourself, what is your hope? What is it that is the hope? Maybe your hope was simply that we just have a nice day together. Well, that's nice. In your affliction, in your affliction, cry out. Because your affliction is what brings you back to where you should be. What is my hope? Encourage one another. Build one another up. Just as you are doing. Lord, help us because we are forgetful and we too easily drift from the hope that you have given us in your Son who sits at your right hand. We thank you that our hope is sitting at your right hand. That because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That because... He has joined our humanity to you that now we may be seated in the heavenly places, that we may be joined to the life of your Son, that we may have life and hope and peace in him. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.